Well, today we come to this part of Peter's letter where he's talking to husbands and wives. Now, it's easy for those of you who are single here to kind of want to just tune out and check out and think, oh, that doesn't apply to me. But I want to encourage you, I want to beg of you today to please do not do that. Because actually what Peter is saying here today is applicable to all of us in this room, male or female, um, young or old, married or single. What Peter has to say to us here in dealing with the inner person of the heart is something that all of us need to hear. You know, every day I pass by this house in my neighborhood on my way to my house. It's a house that's for sale. And on the sign, the realtor has this little message, I'm gorgeous inside. You know, that's what Peter wants for all of us. That's the work that God is seeking to do in our lives as we yield ourselves to Jesus, as we're seeking to walk in that resurrection power that we talked about last week, as we're seeking to walk in the Spirit and be yielded to the Lord, that He is wanting, it's the work, it's the work of transformation that He's wanting to do in all of us is to make us beautiful inside. In fact, I've told you this before, but in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it tells us what I like to call is God's end game, which is this, to conform all of us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the work that he's seeking to do in our lives. And so this is applicable because Peter's dealing with this issue, this aspect of the inner person. And we want to look at that and consider that today. But I also want you to note that Peter's aim in this text is not to give an extensive teaching on marriage. That's not his point. There are other places in the Bible, like Ephesians chapter 5, that really, really does that. But Peter's aim here, this is really a a continuation of a previous thought that began in chapter 2 at verse 11, where Peter was talking about our conduct amongst unbelievers. In fact, just turn back to chapter 2 for a moment. Verse 11 And follow along as I read. Peter writes this. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is what Peter is saying. Peter is saying that we can live our lives in such a way that when unbelievers are viewing our conduct, as they're they're reading our lives, it's been said that some of us are the only Bibles that some people will ever read. And what Peter is saying is that when we live in an honorable way amongst Gentiles, amongst, amongst unbelievers, that our lives can actually impact them and lead them and win them to Christ. And so Peter has talked about in chapter 2 our conduct in relationship to the government, how we as Christians are to live in relationship to the government. He talked about our conduct in relationship to the workplace. For them it was slaves and masters, but for us it's the, the workplace. And now he's bringing it into the home. What is our conduct to be in the home 
And his primary focus here, though, is a wife who is living with an unbelieving husband. Or the way he puts it in verse 1 is a person who does not obey the word. Now, that can be somebody who, a man who hasn't responded yet to the gospel, who hasn't, you know, given their heart over to Jesus like we saw so many do last week on Easter Sunday. But it could also relate to a man who professes to be a Christian, but who is not following the word of God. He's not living in obedience to the word of God. He's a man who is a Christian in name only. And unfortunately, we have a lot of those in the church, the big C church today. And Peter says that such a man can be moved and influenced by three things in his wife, her actions, her attitude, and her admiration. And we're going to look at that today. That's going to be kind of our outline today. But before we get into what Peter says to the wife, I think it's really good for us to kind of look at what was happening in the culture of that day so, so that we understand what the women that Peter was writing to, what they were going through, what they were dealing with being Christians living in the Roman Empire. And Rome was the dominant force in the world at the time of this writing. And male dominance was written into Roman law. In the first century Roman culture, women did, didn't really have any rights whatsoever. They were basically considered property. In fact, the common Roman prayer to the gods was this. I thank you that I am a Greek and not a barbarian, that I am a human and not an animal, and most of all, that I am a man and not a woman. That was their view. It was a very warped and distorted view of women. And because of that, they had a very warped and distorted view of marriage. Men were the absolute heads of their households. They could beat their slaves. They could discard their wives. They could even kill their children without any second thought and no recourse whatsoever. The Roman mindset toward women was this. We have prostitutes for sexual pleasure. We have female slaves to take care of our bodies. And we have wives to bear children and to take care of the house. So literally, it was written into Roman law that a a man was to provide a roof over his wife's head and the opportunity for her to bear children, which would mean he would sleep with her now and then. He was not obligated in any way. He didn't owe her any date nights. He didn't owe her any romantic dinners. He didn't have to learn her love language or go to marriage conferences. None of that was a part of their culture. Now, I have to say this, though. Although that was the culture in Rome at the time of this writing, that was never, ever God's heart. When God created marriage, way back in the book of Genesis, we read in the book of Genesis concerning the first husband and wife, he said that the two became one flesh. And that was always God's heart, is that marriage would be marked by a partnership, the two being brought together. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God blessed them. And he said to them, and he gave to them a mission that they were to follow and that they were to to live in. And so from the very beginning, God's design of marriage is that it would be an ordered equality. And that, that, though, that plan, that model, that picture that God put out would become radically skewed 
and distorted through man's sin and man's rebellion. And it really wouldn't be until Jesus comes on the scene and then the gospel begins to spread through the the Roman Empire that women would start being treated the way that God really intended them to be treated. A great example of this we see in Ephesians chapter 5. In that passage where Paul is talking about marriage and he does say there to the wife that they this was what God was asking of them that they would submit to their husbands. Now here's what you got to understand. When the women heard that that was not new. That wasn't a novel idea in that culture because it was expected that the wives would submit to their husbands. So the women reading what Paul is saying there, they'd be like, duh, Paul, tell us something that we don't know. But what was the radical thought was when Paul said to the husband, and husbands, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And you are to serve her and to give yourself to her in the same way that Jesus serves the church and gave himself to the church. That was a radical new concept because that is not the way that men looked at marriage at all. And Peter is saying a similar thing here in verse 7 when he says to the husband, and dwell with your wife in understanding. Treat her as a fellow heir of the grace life. That is, was a radical new concept that in challenge for the men. You see, the gospel moves marriage back into the direction that God originally intended. This ordered equality. The husband and the wife fulfilling their God-ordained roles. Carrying out their mission together that God has given to them as a couple. And we're going to talk about this more next week when we zero in on the man. But today we're looking at the wife. And again, the context here is a Christian woman who is married to an unbeliever. Or married to a man who professes Christ, but who isn't living by the word of God. And for that woman, her temptation would be this to want to get out of that marriage as quickly as she possibly could and to find a man who loved Jesus just like she did. And Peter's instruction here for her is to not do that. But instead, do what is expected and live in submission to him. And we've talked about this in our previous studies. God's view of submission is this. It's to place yourself under someone else in order to lift them higher. And the ultimate example that we see of submission is really found in Jesus. Jesus was equal with the Father, but he submitted himself to the Father in becoming a man. He submitted himself to his Father in order to fulfill God's plan of salvation, the mission that his Father had given to him. And so when we see submission in in that way, we see that submission is very Christ-like attribute that is beautiful in the eyes of God. It's not the negative thing that our culture tries to make it out to be. But a lot of women struggle with this. In fact, there was a pastor by the name of Louis T. Talbot years ago was preaching at a church up in L.A. on a Sunday, and he preached on the subject of women being submissive to their husbands. And afterwards, a woman came up to him, and she was mad. And she got in his face, and she said, Dr. Talbot, how dare you tell us wives to submit to our husbands? If I was your wife, I'd put poison in your tea tomorrow. And without missing a beat, he said, if I was your husband, I'd drink it. (laughs) 
Now, let me just say this, though. Submission for a wife. A wife is never called to submit to her husband in something that goes against God's word. For these women, I mean, they're coming out of a situation where maybe they they were idolaters, and their husband still was. So he wants her to go to the temple and, and worship an idol with him. She's not called to do that. She's not expected to do that. If it goes against God's word, the wife has to, to put her foot down, so to speak. If you are living in a situation today, you're married to a man who's not a believer, and he wants to, you to do things that go against the Bible, you're not required to submit to that at all. In fact, I want to I read you this from John Piper. He has great insight on this. He said, the husband does not replace Christ as the woman's supreme authority. She must never follow her husband's leadership into sin. But even where a Christian wife may have to stand with Christ against the sinful will of her husband, she can still have a spirit of submission. She can show by her attitude and behavior that she does not like resisting his will and that she longs for him to forsake his sin and lead in righteousness so that her disposition to honor him as head can produce harmony. Well said. So right submission, and this is the point that Peter's making here, right submission can actually be a good witness. The unbelieving husband or the husband who isn't following the Lord can be brought to the Lord by the example of his wife as he notices her actions, her attitude, and her admiration. Let's start with her actions. Verse 1 again. He says, wives, likewise. That word likewise takes us back into chapter 2 and this whole concept of our conduct. And part of that conduct is being submissive in the areas where God is asking us to. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. You ever heard that saying, actions speak louder than words? That's what Peter's getting at here. He's saying, ladies, look, you need to understand, your actions speak louder than your words. So if you're living with a man who isn't following Jesus, don't nag him. Don't preach to him. Don't put Bible tracts in his lunchbox. And definitely don't put them in between the meat and his sandwich. Don't do that. Don't tape scriptures on the bathroom mirror or on the toilet seat. Don't sneak into his car and preset all of his radio stations to Christian radio stations and super glue them so you can't... Some of you go, that's a great idea. No, don't do that. Don't take his phone and change his recording on his phone to John 3.16. Don't do that. Some of you are going, that's even better. No, don't do that. So he's saying, don't do that. Don't turn the family dinner table into an evangelistic crusade. You know, you're like, can I pray for the meal? And you're praying and then you go... Now, with our head bowed and eyes closed, is there anyone here that wants to? Don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. He's saying, no, just live before him. Let your actions speak louder than your words. You see, your husband might be deaf, but he's not blind. 
It was William Barclay, the commentator, who said this. He referred to this as the silent preaching of a lovely wife, a lovely life. The silent preaching of a lovely life. And I think one of the things that we need to think about is what a shell shock it can be to a spouse when their, their spouse, their husband or wife, gets saved. That can be a shocking thing. I mean, an unbelieving husband can suddenly feel threatened when his wife gets saved. He can suddenly feel like, you know, my wife is in love with someone else and it's someone that I can't see. That's unnerving. He's thinking, you know, when the two of us got together, we took vows that nothing would come between us. And now something has come between us. And it's not a something, it's a someone. And that someone is God. When they first got married, he was number one in her life. And now he's been demoted to number two. And and that's hard. And then on top of that, she's now got these weird Christian friends. She's listening to this music he's never heard before. And he can start feeling like his wife is suddenly become an alien, you know? Like he doesn't even recognize her anymore. Who is this woman that I'm married to? It's hard. So this is Peter's whole point. The Christian wife married to an unbeliever needs to find the balance in following Jesus without alienating her husband. And Peter says if she can do that by her actions, she might just win him to Christ. So that's the first thing. She can impact her husband by her actions, when her actions speak louder than her words. Number two, she can impact him by her adornments. And that happens when her attitude is her prettiest feature. Look at verse three. He says, do not let your adornment be merely outward, the arranging of the hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on a fine apparel, but rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. You know, it is tough to be a woman today in this culture. The beauty industry today is a $532 billion industry. And women are constantly being sent a message today through ad campaigns, in magazines, on social media. And the message is this, that you are not enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not thin enough. You're not good enough. Women in this culture are made to feel inferior, ugly, and unlovable. And the consequences of that influence, that overemphasis today in our culture on the outward has some very, very damaging consequences, especially to women. But you know, this obsession with beauty, it's not just a modern problem. It was happening way back in antiquity. Way back in the time that Peter is writing here, there have been archaeological digs that have been done that found in the Roman Empire there was women who dyed their hair. They found hair dye in bold brass colors. They've even find, found wigs. And you know what the most popular wig in the Roman Empire was at the time of this writing? You know what the color was? 
blonde. You got it right. I heard somebody say that. I guess even back then, blondes had more fun, you know? Now, some of you are thinking, that's those pagan Roman women. Actually, they found these wigs in the catacombs of the Christians. So the pressure was mounting even back then for Christian women. But here's what I want you to know. Peter is not giving here a legalistic ban on fashion or style. It's not his point. It's not what he's doing. We all like beauty. God created beauty. We admire beauty. And so when a Christian takes steps to make themselves look good, God doesn't have a problem with that. In fact, it was the old preacher, preacher of old, J. Vernon McGee, who used to say this about women in makeup. He did, I, I didn't say this. This is J. Vernon McGee, okay? <laughs> He used to talk like this. I got a letter today from Burma. That was kind of his accent. And he used to say this about women in makeup. He said, if the barn needs painting, paint it. Um, (laughs) That was his view. Okay, I didn't say that. He said that, all right? So Peter is not being anti-beauty here. What he is talking about, though, is priorities. Look at, look at, notice again, he says, do not let your adornment be merely outward everybody say merely in other words he's saying don't let your adornment just be on the outward being interested in your appearance as a man or a woman is not a sinful thing it's a normal thing but peter wants christian women to understand that their prettiest features should be their inner person but that doesn't just apply to women that applies to every single one of us here God wants us to be gorgeous on the inside. That's the work that he's seeking to do in our lives, to make us gorgeous on the inside. The Greek word translated here, adorn, is the word cosmos, which speaks of an ordered universe. The word means to order or to arrange, and we get our English word cosmetic from this word. So Peter is saying here, Let your adornment, don't let it merely be outward. He's talking about priority here. He's saying to the the, the woman, don't neglect the outward, but make sure that you make your priority the inward. He's talking about who you are on the inside. That's the real you. And he makes a distinction here between incorruptible beauty and corruptible beauty. We might call it the difference between glamour and true beauty. We could think of it in this way. Glamour is artificial and external, but true beauty is real and internal. Glamour is something that you can put on and take off, but true beauty is always present. Glamour is something that is corruptible and decays and it fades, but true beauty is timeless and it's from the heart and it grows more wonderful as the years pass. And so the Lord wants us to be focused on the true beauty, the inside, who we are on the inside. In fact, it tells us in the Bible, it gives us a a description of a woman who's pretty on the outside, but not pretty on the inside. Listen to how it puts it, Proverbs 11.22, it says, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. I think we have a picture of that. 
This is the idea. <laughs> you can put a gold ring, lipstick, eyelashes, a, a pearl necklace on a pig, but it doesn't help, all right? And that's the point. He's saying, hey, you can do everything that you want to make the outside look great, but if the inside doesn't look great, there's, what's the point? What's the purpose in that? So he's saying, give priority to beautifying your heart. And as you do, for the woman living with an unsaved husband or a husband who isn't walking with the Lord, he's saying, as you focus on the inner person, as you do, he might just be so attracted to that, to Jesus shining in your life. I've always been attracted to my wife. I always thought my, my wife, Denise, is a, a beautiful woman. But I got, I got to tell you, when I first met her, she had just graduated Bible college. I was doing a camp up where the Bible college met. When I first met her, she was wearing baggy overalls, flannel shirt, and Birkenstocks. She's from Oregon, and she looked like a hippie, okay? Her outfit wasn't stunning. It wasn't like, wow. But I tell you, as I, as I got to know her, as I spent just that first day a little bit of time with her, and I saw who she was on the inside and her love for Jesus, I was like, who is this creature? I've got, I, I just was so drawn to her, so, so attracted to her. And this is what Peter's saying. It's when, when we're focusing on, on the inside, is that beauty reflects really on the outside. And so he's describing this inner beauty as a gentle and quiet spirit. And he's saying, I want you to make this your priority. Think of it in this way. If I go to the gym once a week to work out, that's good. But it's not great. It's okay. If I go to the gym once a week and then I do a lot of exercises on my own at home, that's even better. What's my point here? Well, if this is the only time that you spend all week long working on your inner adornment, I mean, that's okay, but it's not great. Now, if you spend... Your time here on Sunday and you're working on allowing God's word to get into your heart and then you're spending time at home and you're you know, getting in the word and spending time with Jesus and allowing him to work on you at home. That's even better. And that's the point. It's all about priority. He's saying make your priority, your focus on the inner person, not the outer person. And he describes this inner beauty as a gentle and quiet spirit. The word gentle is the word meek. And you know, meek, it means, it's not weakness. Meekness is not weakness, but it's power under control. It doesn't mean cowering, in other words. The word meek is derived from the idea of a powerful horse that is being brought into submission. And a gentle spirit is somebody whose spirit is under God's control. In the context here of the wife, it's a wife whose life is under God's control. Her mouth is under God's control. Her responses are under God's control. Her emotions are under God's control. That's meekness. About a year into 
our marriage, Denise and I moved from an apartment that we lived at here in Vista to a house that we rented in Oceanside. And a woman across the street, about two weeks in, came over and introduced herself to Denise. And she said, hey, all the women on our street meet at my house on Mondays for lunch. To com- and we meet and complain about our husbands. You want to come? <laughs> I'm totally serious. And Denise said, I think I'll pass. I actually love my husband. Now, it wasn't that she didn't have a lot of things to complain about. She did. She had a boatload of things to complain about. She could have went and dominated the meeting if she wanted to. But she exercised her meekness by saying, nah, I think I'll pass on that. And what's interesting is that neighbor was really drawn to Denise because of that, got to know her. Denise ended up leading her to the Lord, and her and her family started to come into the church here. It's amazing, amazing thing to see. Meekness is an inner strength that is derived from knowing who you are in Jesus. It's realizing that inner beauty is what matters most. This is what Solomon said in Proverbs 31, 25. Speaking of the virtuous wife, he said, Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. In other words, she is inwardly clothed with strength of character and confidence. Peter also says that she's marked by a quiet spirit. Now, he's not describing a wallflower here. He's not saying that women should be seen and not heard. That, that's not his point. The idea here is speaking of having a calming influence, a tranquility of heart. It's where her home is a sanctuary from all of the stress of life and all the responsibilities and work that she's created a place of of refuge for her husband and her family. And so Peter is telling us that a wife can impact her unbelieving husband or her husband who really isn't walking with Jesus. She can impact him by her actions, when her actions speak louder than her words, by her attitude, when... Her attitude is her, or by her adornment, when her attitude is her prettiest feature, she's gorgeous on the inside. And number three, by her admiration, that her admiration is more biblical than conventional. And what I mean by that is when she's looking for role models and examples, she looks to the Bible, not People magazine. Look at verse five. He says, for in this manner in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. What Peter does is he points back to these biblical women as examples. He says, ladies, look, look to Sarah, not Cleopatra. Look to Sarah, not the Kardashians. Look to Sarah. Not Oprah or Jill Biden. Look to Sarah. Let Sarah be your example. And what's interesting, the Bible tells us about Sarah is that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. But here's what Peter's wanting us to catch, is that her beauty wasn't just skin deep. Peter's telling us here that she was a woman of beautiful countenance, but also a beautiful character as well. 
Her inner beauty was seen in the way that she responded to her husband in that he says that she called him Lord. Now some of you are going, what? What? Are you expecting that I'm supposed to say to my husband when he comes home from work, welcome to your kingdom, Lord. (laughs) What would you like for dinner, Lord? No, that's not the point at all. It's not what he's saying. The word Lord here, little l, not capital L, really is speaking of showing him respect. It's the whole idea. It was Emerson Egrets who wrote the book Love and Respect, great book, who said this. The whole, whole premise of the book is summarized in this quote, a woman's greatest need and desire is to be loved, and a man's greatest need and desire is to be respected. And you know what? That is actually a biblical concept because... When Paul is ending his whole teaching on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, he gives this summary statement in verse 33. He says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. He's saying, husbands, this is what you're called to. Love your wife just like you love yourself. And wives, respect your husband." Now, maybe some of you ladies are thinking, well, if my husband was like Sarah's husband, if my husband was an Abraham, then maybe I could submit to him too. Well, not so fast. Abraham actually wasn't the greatest guy. In fact, think about this. There was a famine in the land. And good old godly Abraham, rather than trusting in God, says to his wife, let's go to Egypt. Egypt was the epitome of the world. Let's go to Egypt where we can get safety. And Sarah says, okay. And they head down there. And as they're getting close, Abraham looks at his wife and he says, babe, you are a beautiful woman. That's a nice thing to hear from your husband, right? You're a beautiful woman. He goes, in fact, you're so beautiful. When the Egyptians see you, they're going to kill me. To get you. So he says, tell them you're my sister. And you know what happened? They went with that lie. Abraham goes with that lie. Oh, this is my sister. And Pharaoh takes Sarah into his harem. But God protected her. And wouldn't let Pharaoh even touch her. And this is the whole point. In Peter's illustration, and using Sarah as an example, he's telling you this. Sarah trusted God even when she could not trust her husband. And that's the point. And God took care of her. And God protected her. And he's saying, look, you are his daughter. So listen, when your husband is making poor decisions, you trust God to care for you. It doesn't mean that you can't, you know, say, can we pray about this a little bit more, babe? Or, you know, I, I'm not sure. It doesn't mean that you can't voice your opinion. But if he's like, nope, I prayed about this is God. This is what we're doing. It's like, oh, okay. And you trust God to take care of you even when you can't trust your husband. And the adornment that Sarah is commended for is that she trusted God in submitting to her husband even when she couldn't trust her husband. And one last thing I want you to see here, it's the motivation in all of this is found in verse 4, is he tells us that it's precious in the sight of God. When a man or a woman is saying, you know what, I want to focus on my inner person. 
That's what I want to be my priority. I I want to be, be being built up and growing on the inside and let that affect me on the outside. That's precious in the eyes of God. When a woman is being submitting, is submitting to her husband and she's seeking to influence him by her actions, when her attitude is her prettiest feature, that's precious in the eyes of God. God is, is blessed by that. And that is always the goal, my friends, is we're living our lives for God's glory. We're seeking to live in an honorable way amongst unbelievers so that they might be influenced and impacted by our conduct, and through that, God is glorified. And that's why, I've said this before, and I'm going to remind you of it again, submission in any form, in any arena, arena, submission always begins by you and I being submitted to Jesus. It's us coming to that place where we're saying, Lord, I want my life to be directed by your word. I want my life to be directed by what you say and who you are. And I want you to be glorified in my life, in every aspect of it. So I'm going to take my P's, I'm going to take my Q's, I'm going to take my direction from you and your word. Because I want you to be glorified in my life. And that's exactly what some people are going to be doing today. As we wrap up our time today, we're going to be celebrating and, and watching and celebrating with some people who are going to get baptized today. And what they're saying today is, Jesus, I want my life to be submitted to you. Jesus told us to believe and be baptized. That baptism is a mark of a disciple. Baptism represents our old life being buried with Christ. And then we're being raised to walk in this newness of life as we seek to follow him. And we have a a bunch of people today that are going to take that plunge and make that outward proclamation. If you want to get baptized today, if you're saying like, you know what, I want that. I want my life to be directed by Christ. You can join them. I'm going to pray. The band's going to come up. Those who are being baptized, I want you even right now as I'm praying just to move and head this way over to my left. And we're going to have our team over there ready to get you guys uh, suited up. And Pastor Aaron, our student ministry pastor, is going to be baptizing this service. So let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you, Lord, for how much you love us. We thank you, Lord, that you take what man in its sin and rebellion has ruined and you make it right. That you are the one who transforms lives. And Lord, we're we're thankful today as we celebrate today lives that have been transformed. Lives that are submitted to you and seeking to follow you and declaring that today in baptism. And Lord, I pray for anybody here in this room right now, who maybe doesn't have that relationship with you and doesn't know you. And right now, your Holy Spirit is tugging on their heart and they realize, you know what? I need to be submitted to God. If that's you today, I want you to just encourage you in the quietness of your heart to just say this. Just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And I'm asking you today to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me and come into my life. And make me new. 
and begin that work today on the inside that affects the way I live on the outside. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.